Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 27th of February 2022, 9.30 service. Katie Loffman speaking in the series. King David, the good, the bad and the ugly. The weak and impotent king. Please sit down. Well, King David, a hero of the Jewish people, a powerful king who did a huge amount of good for Israel. A life devoted to God and a reign that reflected that. He was a great man, powerfully used by God to establish his kingdom, not only in Judah and Israel, but also his everlasting kingdom through Jesus. And yet, David was no superhero. We've heard a lot about that over the last eight weeks of this, uh, this series. He was very human with the flaws and temptations of any man. He didn't live up to all of God's commandments and instructions for a king that were given in Deuteronomy 17, which were not to acquire great wealth, not to have many wives. He made mistakes and he did bad things out of weakness and muddle. But he tried to keep the law and he tried to be humble. Also, two of God's instructions for kings. And here we see in 1 and 2 Kings, David on his deathbed. He's an old man and he can't get warm. Still, the Bible has things to tell us about him that teach us something about God and his eternal plan. That's what makes the, these books of the Bible scripture and not just straight history. The Bible is not just the story of God's people. It's primarily the story of God and his relationship with the world. And this sermon series, I think, has shown that quite clearly. So what do these last two chapters of David's life tell us about God? One thing we've seen throughout, and we still see here, is that God's plan is not thwarted, despite people going against it. His grace wins through. We heard earlier in the book of Samuel that God chose Solomon who was David and Bathsheba's second son after the first baby died for David's sin. Solomon was the one to be king after David, even though he's not the oldest, and eventually he became the ancestor of Jesus. By the time we get to 1 Kings, Adonijah was the oldest surviving brother, and now that David was old and weak, he decided to try and have himself made king but that didn't work. Initially, Solomon lets him off with a warning, but then he makes another power play and Solomon has him executed for treason. <clears throat> God's plan for Solomon and his lineage is secure because, as Stephen said last week, God never gives up pouring his grace into the mayhem that comes from human weakness and sin. Another thing this chapter tells us is that ordinary people are equipped by God and used by him to bring about God's purposes. David is very old and the implication is that he's close to death. He can't get warm. He's, like he's almost like he's as cold as a corpse that can't warm itself. His servants decide that what he needs to bring him to life is a pure, innocent girl to cuddle up to him and look after him 
When Abishag the Shunammite is appointed, she's like a lamb without blemish. She sacrifices her life in Shunem for David. She washes him, she feeds him, and she, she gives him the warm-blooded comfort of her own body to breathe a little life back into him. Does that remind you of Jesus, the Lamb of God? He washes his disciples' feet. He feeds thousands. He offers living water. Eventually, he gives not only the warmth of his body, but his blood too, to breathe new life into us and wash us clean from sin. Abishag has a purity, an innocence, a beauty that restores David just as Jesus restores us. Church tradition has it that this Abishag is the same woman who years later befriends the prophet Elisha. He stays with her and her husband whenever he visits Shunem. One day her son is taken ill, so she asks Elisha to come. When Elisha arrives, he sees the dead, body, the dead boy on the couch and then he lies down on top of him and he warms the boy back to life with the warmth of his own body. What a miracle and what symmetry. It's as if Elisha is repaying her for the warmth that she'd given David all those years ago. If this is indeed Abishag's son, then Elisha's miracle doubly reinforces the message of Jesus' power to give new life. Now, if you've watched any historical dramas, you'll know that you can't stay long in a king's court without getting caught up in some kind of intrigue or plot. And inevitably, that happens to Abishag. Although, like Jesus, she's passive in the political machinations that are going on around her. Adonijah plans a second assault on the throne after Solomon is made king. He does it by asking Solomon to give him Abishag as his wife. Now, only a king can take over the previous king's servants, his wives or his harem. So this is a bold statement of his intent. Solomon refuses, and then he has Adonijah executed. And Abishag is witness to all of this. She was there when Bathsheba brought David the news that Adonijah had had himself appointed king. So she becomes a witness of David telling Bathsheba that Adonijah can never be king, that God's promise will be honored and Solomon will be the one to succeed him, not Adonijah. So she was a witness to God's promise being put in action. And we don't know how she felt about this, but here in one Kings, she's silent as a lamb. Abishag had got her job through a rather strange recruitment process. When David's servants decided that what he needed was a human hot water bottle, in verse 3, it says, they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag. And this reminded me of how Esther got her job. Xerxes, king of Medes and Persians, was looking for a new queen and he conducted a similar search to find the most beautiful woman for the job. Both Esther and Abishag were thrust into the king's palace and the king's bed 
because of their beauty. God used their good looks to enable them to play a special role in the kingdoms where they lived. In both cases, it resulted in the downfall of the enemy of God's people, or in this case, an enemy of God's chosen anointed king. God has made each of us with our own special talents and gifts, which are unique. For some of us, it's beauty. For some, it's brains. For others, it's strength. You know what you're good at yourself. But whatever our gifts are, he's given them to us to use for him. Like Abishag and Esther, we can offer our whole selves to God for whatever work he needs from us. Work that perhaps only we can do. Each of us holds a unique piece of the jigsaw of God's work. A unique cog in his grand design with the gifts and talents that he's given us. We may not be as important as David or as beautiful as Abishag, but we are still part of God's fight against his enemies and the enemies of God's people. We're still needed in the ongoing defeat of evil that's still going on in the world, and we mustn't shy away from that. Throughout this series, we've seen multiple ways in which King David's life was, in part, a prophecy of the future Messiah. Prophecies which Jesus fulfilled during his life on earth. And David's life shows the difference that Jesus makes in this world. Before David, King Saul made mistakes, and we see the tragedy of God removing his favour from him. It's scary. But as Stephen pointed out last week, David makes even worse mistakes over his reign, but God treats him with grace. God has made him a promise and he sticks to it. He's constantly working through David and he brings redemption not only in the present, in David's lifetime, but into the future with the pro promised Messiah descended from David, ruling forever. This shows the difference between the world we know, rescued by Jesus, and the world as it would be if Jesus never came. And we heard about that in the passage from Romans 5 that Harriet read, how wonderful that reconciliation is that Jesus gives. And we live in that world where that reconciliation has happened. Sin is, for, for, without that, without Jesus, sin is not forgiven and there's no redemption. The bleakness and futility of Saul's later life gives us a glimpse of a life without Jesus. On the other hand, David's life gives us glimpses of Jesus. So how does this part fit in? Is he still foretelling the future Messiah? An old man lying in bed while his son makes a move on the throne? As powerless, as a young man hanging on a cross while evil makes its final move on God. One of his last acts is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 2 and that's to hand over his throne to Solomon. He reminds Solomon of, da of God's promise that David's line will last forever and he tells Solomon to walk in God's ways and keep his commandments. All very good advice but then he goes and ruins it. 
He starts listing all the people he's got a grudge against and tells Solomon to get revenge. He ends his life bitter and cold and weak. It's so sad. Even David, a man after God's own heart, could not live up to his own calling. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament warns us about this. Chapter 12 earns us, urges us to run with perseverance the race marked out before us and not to give up on living out our faith. And Romans 5 in the reading says the same thing, how the things that happen to us in our life produce perseverance and how important that is. Because remember, it's a marathon and not a sprint. David dies at a good old age and he's buried in Jerusalem and you can still see his grave there to this day. If this is the end of David's story, then where's the resurrection? There's a hint of it in Abishag, but not for David. So what can David's life tell us about this? Well, the answer is that we have to wait for resurrection. Often we can't see it in the world or in our own circumstances, and we certainly can't see it in our own loved ones who've died. But we know that resurrection will come. David's faith in his everlasting throne was not based on what he could see happening. It was based on God's promise. The disciples, many of them, were blessed by seeing the resurrected Jesus after Easter. But we, like Doubting Thomas and King David, have to believe without seeing. But we know that we can trust in God's promises because of his faithfulness that we've seen in the Bible and in the world and in our own lives. If we live long enough, we may find ourselves old and weak, as David did. But that doesn't negate what's gone before. And neither does it mean that God's work in our life is over. No, it just means that resurrection is coming, but we have to wait a bit longer. And this is another example of the now and the not yet. David had the present and certain hope of the future Messiah born from his own descendants, but he didn't see it fulfilled in his own lifetime. But he knew that because God had promised it, it would come true. He knew that, he knew this because of God's faithfulness to him throughout all the ups and downs of his own life. His life gives us glimpses of redemption, a new life born out of hopelessness. And that shows us that God has not forgotten what he's promised to do, that the whole world will be restored in the perfection it had when he first made it. Those glimpses in the world around us and, in, and the glimpses that we see in our own life, that when we see those now, they are reminders of God's faithfulness as we anticipate and trust in the not yet, the promise of total renewal and total unity with God. But to get there, God had to defeat evil. And we know that he did that with Jesus on the cross. But we're still living with the consequences of evil and the effects of people deciding not to live a life of sacrificial love and turning away from God. So this means that there's still an ongoing battle. 
In the story of David, that evil was personified by different people and nations who conspired against God's people. Some of the enemies that David had to deal with were external, like the Philistines and the Canaanites and other nations that threatened God's people. And David fought them off with his armies, with God's help. Other enemies come from closer to home. His own family, like his father-in-law Saul and his son Adonijah, they were threatening the anointed representative of God's people, David, the king himself. God's people have enemies today too, both of both of those kinds. From outside, we're attacked by non-Christians and atheists who think that we should just give up on a faith they see as outdated. We're sometimes attacked by, no doubt, well-meaning Christians who lead people astray or bring the church into disrepute. And there's the random evil in the world, suffering, illness, problems, we also get attacked personally from within ourselves, don't we? We give in to temptations that we know we shouldn't. We fail to live the life of sacrificial love that Jesus calls us to. We put laziness above going the extra mile to help someone. We put materialism above generosity. Like, like David, we see something we want and we do what it takes to get it, even if it's at someone else's expense. These actions are corrosive. When we do them, we're harming our relationship with God. We're being our own worst enemy. In the account of David's life, the enemies he faced were physical and he could fight against them and win. Our enemies may not be physical, but we still need to fight against them and with God's help, we can win. That's why we have the confession every week in our services. God can defeat those enemies and give us a fresh start. And we need to be vigilantly on his side. So this is another way in which David was not only an ancestor of Jesus, but also a small preview of Jesus. Just as David fought off Israel's enemies, so Jesus decisively fought off the ultimate enemy, evil itself. So that's David's life in all its glory, the good, the bad and the ugly. I hope this series has shown you some of the reasons why the Bible gives us such a warts and all picture of a man who is such a hero to the Jews and to us. Because that's what makes these accounts scripture and not just history or even legend. David isn't an idealised, whitewashed superhero. He's a real man trying to do the right thing and sometimes failing. And that makes us think, what does the Bible tell us by putting in all these bad bits as well? Well, one thing it shows us is that God uses imperfect humans for his work in the world to carry out his plan for his creation. And he never gives up on his children, and that includes us. Our shortcomings are no reason for God not to use us. We each have a role to play in his plan. But more than that, David's shortcomings show us how necessary it was for Jesus to come. God made David a promise that he would establish a perfect kingdom, 
where his descendants would rule forever. But it quickly becomes apparent that neither David nor his sons are able to live up to that. It's only through sending his own son as the perfect anointed Messiah that God can bring about the kingdom that he's promised. David didn't live to see that, but he believed that it would happen one day and it changed his life. And hundreds of years later, the perfect Messiah did come and we have the account of that in the Gospels. We may not live to see God's promised kingdom coming to fruition here on earth, but we can be certain that it will happen one day and that changes our life because it changes everything. We can trust in God's promises because they don't depend on human beings with all their goodness, badness and ugliness. God's promises depend on the faithfulness of God's grace. And like David, we too can base our lives on God's faithfulness and his grace to us.